Well, this is the final week in our series we're calling Bible Savvy, and the goal of the series is to launch our new church-wide uh, four-year Bible reading plan, where we are covering the entire Bible over the course of the next four years. Uh, and to go along with that, we have made these journals, uh, Bible reading journals for both uh, adults and children. Uh, and in these journals, we are using a very simple Bible study method that we call COMA. And COMA is an acronym. It stands for Context, Observation, Message, and Application. And let me explain to you how I think of COMA, how, what makes sense out of it for me. COMA is a little bit like an episode of Law and Order. Okay, you ever seen an episode of Law and Order? Okay, uh, Every episode is exactly the same. Same formula for each episode. Uh, the first thing that happens in the show is a crime is reported and the detectives show up on the scene. And they get a basic orientation to what's going on. The, the kind of crime, uh, who the victim was, uh, how it was reported, who reported it, that sort of thing. This is like the C in coma context. There you go. The next thing that happens is those detectives, they gather evidence. They get fingerprints and DNA and autopsies and that sort of thing. They interview possible witnesses and possible suspects. And at first, they don't know where the evidence is going to lead. They don't know uh, what they're going to find, but they know there are certain things that are usually helpful to try to follow up on. Uh, this is like the O in coma or observation. Yeah. Eventually, those detectives, what they do is they gather enough evidence that they come to a point where they say, this is who we think did it. Uh, to change the metaphor a little bit, it's sort of like when you get to the point in saying, it's Colonel Mustard in the conservatory with the lead pipe. That's the, that's the message part of coma. Can't get yeah, okay, there we go. The final thing that happens in the show is the detectives, they hand over their conclusion and all of their evidence to the lawyers. It goes to the district attorney. Uh, and then the lawyers, they go into court and they say, what should we do about this? This person committed a crime. Here's what we think the sentence should be. Here is the action we should take with this. This is sort of like the A in coma or application. All right, there we go. Now, the reason this analogy is helpful for me is because I, I think for a lot of people, the hardest part of this process is going from the observations to the message. Uh, you feel like those detectives, you're, you're gathering clues and you're, you're, you're looking at all of the evidence and you're saying, what, what does this mean? You know, is this important? You know, is this, does this phrase have to do with anything? Like, what's this word mean? And you're, you're gathering all of these clues, but you don't know exactly where it's going to lead at first. But, but at some point, you've got to make an arrest. You've got to say, here is what I think the message of this passage is. Here's, here's one of the things I think it means. And that's the step that a lot of people feel uncertain about. So I, I've just got a couple of pieces of advice if you're, you're in that situation. First is this. Don't overthink it. Okay? Uh, maybe this past week, you were reading a story about Jesus performing a miracle in the book of Mark. And you, you gathered all these observations, and you finally get down to, what message can I get from this? And all you can think of is, Jesus is powerful, or, or, or Jesus can do anything. And you think, well, that sounds kind of simple, kind of obvious, like it doesn't, it doesn't seem that profound. But what I want to tell you is, that's actually great. That's fine. It, it doesn't actually have to be more complicated than that. You know, every once in a while, you're going to see something in a passage, and you're going to come up with something that's just really clever, really insightful, and that's going to be a, a great thing. But for most of us, th these really simple ideas are our daily bread when we're reading the Bible. It's, it, it doesn't have to be harder than that. You don't have to overthink it. The other thing is this. Practice helps a lot with this step. Uh, you know how you get good at finding the message in a passage? You do it over and over and over again. 
Uh, there are about a thousand episodes of Law and Order. If you add up all of the series, there's just a ton of these. But if you've watched like 20 of them, it's really easy to start predicting what's going to happen. You, you can usually beat the detectives to the punch. And, and the same is sort of true with reading the Bible. In, in, in three, four months, six months, a year from now, when you've gone through coma a hundred times, it's going to start to feel a lot more natural, a, a lot more uh, uh, easy to go from observations to message. Now, of course, you're always going to run into passages that just stump you, uh, and, and you don't need to sweat that. I interpreting the Bible and explaining it is kind of my job, uh, and all the time I run into things in the Bible that just throw me for a loop. And, and you know what I do when I get to those sections? I say, God, thank you that you are too big to understand. Uh, thank you that there are still more things to learn. And, and I say, God, help me understand tomorrow's reading. I, I, I really do. I, I pray like that. So if you've been reading along in uh, the Bible Savvy Plan, you know that we are in the book of Mark, uh, and we're going to be in the book of Mark for just one more week. And, and so today, I, I want us to go just one more time through a passage that you're going to read. You're going to read this on Friday in Mark chapter 14, and we're going to go through the process of coma together. So go ahead and turn with me to Mark chapter 14. Now, you should know that when we uh, give you a, a, a reading for the reading plan, we don't expect you to do coma on everything in the whole reading. A lot of times when I'm reading, I'll just pick one story in the reading or, or one paragraph in the reading uh, that just strikes me as significant. And I say, I'm going to go through the whole process on this. Uh, you often can't do it on the whole reading. Uh, and so that's what we're going to do that today. We're just going to look at verses 22 to 25. Now, here's the context. The, the story takes place on the night just before Jesus was executed. Uh, on this night, Jesus is sharing a final meal with his disciples. It was on a holiday called Passover, which was kind of like the, the 4th of July in Israel. It was the celebration of the birth of the nation. Uh, it was when God rescued the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt. It's the whole Moses story. And, and Jesus and his disciples, they are eating the traditional Passover meal on this night together. And this is part of the conversation they have over that meal. Now, I'm going to read this to you right now. You can uh, follow along with me. We're actually going to do something a little bit new for us here as I read this. Um, this might not be new for some of you if you've been in other churches, but it's new for Christ's community. At the end of the reading, I'm going to say this. This is the word of the Lord, and I'm going to have all of you at all four of our campuses respond, thanks be to God. Okay? Now, here's the reason why churches uh, all throughout history have done something like this when the Bible is read. It's because it is a real privilege to hear from God. Like, he didn't have to talk to us. He didn't have to say anything. But he filled an entire book with things that, that he wants us to know. He, he's told us his heart, his mind right here. And, and for that, we should say thank you. We should pause and say, this is a good gift. And so that's why we're going to do this now. Now, when we do this, I don't want you to go... Thanks be to God, okay? Um, you're saying thank you to somebody uh, for something they've given you. So, so just say it with gusto. And if you want to cheer, you want to clap, that is totally appropriate. So, so let's practice this. All four campuses. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, let's try it out. While they were eating, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples saying, take it. This is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
All right. Well, this passage is the story that is usually called the Last Supper, and it is the basis of communion. Uh, and communion, along with baptism, are two of the, the major ceremonies that Jesus gave to his followers. Uh, these are two rituals that are at the heart of our faith. In our church, we call them ordinances because they were ordained by Jesus for us to do. Uh, in other churches, they use the word sacraments, and the word sacrament is just the, the Latin word for mystery because uh, God works in mysterious and powerful ways through these things. And if you've been at other churches and, and you've celebrated communion, you may have actually heard them refer to it with a few different names. Uh, the three most common names for the ceremony are the Lord's Supper, Eucharist, and Communion. It's called the Lord's Supper uh, simply because it's uh, from Jesus. Our Lord gave us this meal to celebrate. He is the host uh, and we are his guests. Uh, the word Eucharist is just the Greek word for thanks. Uh, and it actually comes right out of this verse. Uh, it says when Jesus took the cup, he gave thanks. Uh, and in Greek, it just says he Eucharisted uh, for the cup. And so when he, we, uh, he passed out the bread and the cup, uh, later in the Bible, it's called the cup of thanksgiving sometimes. And so some churches, they just pull that Greek word and call it Eucharist. And you're, you're thankful when you go to it. And so it makes sense. Uh, the name communion, which is the name that we use most often around here, uh, comes from a passage in 1 Corinthians uh, where it talks about how this ceremony is a way for us to commune with Jesus, uh, to relate to him personally, to have a, a, a relationship with him and with his people. And so if you're out and about and you hear people say any of those words, uh, you, you can know that they're talking about basically the same sort of thing. Now, let, let's dig into this passage a little bit and see what we can learn about the ceremony of communion. Uh, let's make some observations here. Uh, I'll, I'll share just a few of the observations I made this week. Um, and if you want, you can actually mark them in your weekly welcome. That's the reason we printed the passage in there. Because uh, sometimes when I'm making observations, I will just take a pencil and I'll circle or underline things that I think are important in the passage um, and, and gather those clues. So uh, we're looking at this and we're looking for things uh, that follow our acronym TREATS, T-R-T-S. Things that are themes, repetition, truths about God, and something striking. So I notice some repetition in this passage. Jesus does something twice. He, he takes something from the table, he, he says thanks, and then he shares it with his disciples. But what's interesting about the repetition is that he changes it the second time. So the first time he takes bread and he talks about his body, and then he takes a cup and he talks about his blood. And so I, I felt like that was kind of striking. So I underlined the, the word bread and cup and, and the word body and blood. Uh, I was also struck in verse 24 by the word covenant. Um, and the reason I was struck by that was it's kind of an unusual word. And I thought, what, what, what's that mean there? And, and I also have, have been reading the Bible for a while, and I've seen that word come up in other places. It's sort of repeated not just in this passage, but uh, in lots of passages. And I thought, this must be important. So I, I circled that. The, the other thing I saw was in the last sentence. I felt like this was very striking. Jesus says, he won't drink wine again until he drinks it new in the kingdom. And I thought, you know, if I was sitting at a meal and someone said, I'm not going to do this again until heaven, that would really catch my attention. And so I, I circled that. I underlined uh, that sentence there. Now, when you get to this point in coma and you've collected a bunch of observations, uh, when you go on to the message step uh, in your daily reading, you just need to pick one of your observations. Just take one and say, what principle can I get out of this? What, what timeless truth can I, I bring from these observations and apply to my life? Now, you don't have to follow every lead. You just pick one. Uh, today, though, I'm going to do this three times. We're going to go from some observations to three different messages. And here's the first one. Communion remembers a past sacrifice. Communion remembers a past sacrifice. 
And I got this from the observation of the body and the blood. I asked the question, okay, what is Jesus talking about when he says his body and his blood? Now, in looking backwards on the the whole story, we know that this is about the death of Jesus on the cross. That's the basic symbolism of the the bread and the cup, that that they represent his death. But what's worth remembering is at this point in the story, the disciples don't realize what's going to happen. They're at this meal, and Jesus has mentioned that he's going to die, but they're still pretty hazy about the details and what it's going to mean. But I actually think that within the context of uh, the passage, there are some clues that the disciples might have even picked, on, uh, picked up on as to what Jesus meant by his body and blood. Remember, I mentioned that this was a Passover meal. And in the original Passover, the way God convinced Pharaoh to set Israel free from Egypt was by threatening a plague of death on the entire land. And God said, I'm gonna send this plague of death into every home And the way that you can be saved from this is by gathering in your homes and eating a meal together, a meal of lamb. And when you you kill the lamb, take some of the blood from the lamb and smear it on the top and on the sides of your door. And then when the plague of death comes through, God says, I will look and I will see the blood that's on the door and I will pass over the house. The idea is that the, the lamb dies instead of the people. The people trusted God enough that they gathered in this home, put up the blood, and so the lamb would die in their place, take the punishment that they deserved. Now, this Passover meal, 1,500 years later, where Jesus is celebrating this with his disciples, when he mentions his body and his blood, the, the most natural connection with blood is to think of this lamb. And in a sense, Jesus is saying, when I die, my death is gonna mean the same thing. It's gonna do the same thing. I, I will die instead of you. I will die and you will live. I, I will suffer and you will go free. Now, now, when you hear that, you might be thinking, how can he do that? It's kind of a weird thing. You ever thought that? Like, it feels a little bit arbitrary that Jesus would say, you know what, I'm just going to choose to take your punishment. It, it feels like it's sort of random. You just gra- grabbed a random innocent person and killed them, and they somehow let us off the hook. Now, how does that work? I promise I'm going to answer that question. But for now, here's the one thing I want you to understand. It is Jesus' past sacrifice that gives you access to God. This is not about what you do. It's all about what Jesus has already done. This is what we mean when we use the word grace. We mean that access to God, salvation, is a gift. Now, that doesn't mean that it's free. It just means that somebody else paid the bill. So you don't have to earn your way to God because Jesus has already earned the way for you. And when people approach communion, sometimes they get mixed up about this part. Because people sometimes see communion as sort of this religious ritual, you know, and it's a way to kind of earn points with God. If they do this, then they think God's going to be just a little bit happier with them on that. Maybe they even see it as sort of a a way to sort of make up for something bad that they've done in the past. You know, you you eat this, you drink that, and it it covers what you did last night. You know, kind of tips the scales back in the other direction. Uh, Other people, they look at communion as something that they've got to earn. They, they don't feel like they're worthy to take communion. You know, this is, a, this is a holy thing. It's for holy people. It's for the clean people. And that, that is definitely not me. You, you don't know the things I've done. You don't know about my past. You, you don't know the things I think. I mean, if you did, you would not let me do this, you know? It, it's, it, people are ashamed. It feels sort of like uh, showing up at a nice restaurant or a, a wedding reception, and they're in their workout clothes. You know, they're just embarrassed, and they, 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 they wonder if they're even going to be welcomed there. And so people have this notion in mind that they either think, I've got to be good enough to take communion, 
Or if I take communion, it's going to make me good enough. But neither of those things is true. Communion is not about being good enough. It's about Jesus being good enough. His body was broken so that we could be put back together again. His blood was poured out so that we could be gathered in. This is why in our special music today, we sang, I was carried to the table, seated where I don't belong. I, I was carried to the table. I didn't walk up. I didn't strut up. I didn't, I didn't walk in like I owned the place. I had to be carried there. You're not welcome to the meal because you're worthy. You are worthy of the meal because Jesus welcomed you there. Jesus sacrificed his body and his blood to make you worthy of it. Now, sometimes when we talk about the body and the blood, people ask the question, okay, wait, what does this mean? What does it mean that the bread's his body and the, the cup's his blood? Like, how does that work? Is some, is some you know, change going on here? Is something uh, physical happening here? And, and over the course of, of church history, there's been a lot of debate about that question. People say, how is Jesus present in communion? And there have really been three major answers that people have given to that question. Uh, on one side of the spectrum, you've got churches that say Jesus is physically present in communion. You know, there's some sort of miracle, and the bread literally turns into his body, and the wine or the juice literally turns into his blood. It, it still looks and it tastes like bread and wine, but the substance, in some mysterious way, has become the body and blood of Jesus. Now, on the other side of the spectrum, you've got churches who say Jesus is symbolically present. It's, bread is just bread, the, the wine or the juice is just wine or juice, and, and Jesus is just giving us a metaphor. It's a, a, a simple visual aid to help us remember in a more vivid way what Jesus did for us. Uh, somewhere in the middle, there are churches who say Jesus is spiritually present. Uh, the, the bread and the wine don't change into Jesus's literal body and blood, but they're also more than visual aids. Jesus is active doing something special as we celebrate communion in a powerful and unique way in this ceremony. It's not quite the same thing as if you see a cross or another uh, symbol and you remember the death of Jesus. Uh, God's interacting with his people in a special way uh, that, that, that's something different from, from ordinary things. Now, one way to think about the, the differences between these three views is to think about a marriage. For people who see Jesus as physically present, communion is sort of like kissing your spouse. It's a, a physical encounter with their body, a physical expression of your connection with them. Uh, for people who say Jesus is symbolically present, communion is sort of like looking at your wedding photos. The, the pictures remind you of their commitment. They inspire love and gratitude for that person. They, they keep the, the feelings of first love fresh in your heart. And the power is in the remembering, even if that person isn't physically present with you. Uh, for those who say Jesus is spiritually present, doing something special in communion, it, this is a little bit more like renewing your wedding vows. Like I, I know a couple in our church who every year on their anniversary, they get together uh, with a pastor. They don't do a full wedding ceremony, but they'll, they'll have the pastor share a little bit about the meaning of marriage, and then they will re-express their promises to each other that they had made at the beginning of the relationship. So if I were going to put myself on this chart, I would put myself somewhere between the view that Jesus is symbolically present and he's spiritually present in communion. I don't think Jesus is physically present in communion. And, and the main reason I think that is in the moment when Jesus is holding up the bread and he says to this group of people, this is my body. My hunch is that their first thought is not, wow, that miraculously changed into his flesh, his literal flesh. I think in the context of a Passover meal, which is a symbolic meal to begin with, they would have said, oh, Jesus is introducing a new symbol for us to understand what he's talking about. And, and so I think the, the bread and the cup are symbolic. 
But I also think something special, something significant happens in this ceremony that's unique, that's, that only happens here. And I think it's something like renewing marriage vows. And I get this. The reason I think this is because of the second message I want you to see from this passage. And that's this. Communion renews a present commitment. Communion renews a present commitment. Now, look back at your observations from the passage. Uh, we circled that word covenant as something striking. Now, the question is, what in the world is a covenant? And that's not a, an ordinary term that we use. Uh, but this is, basically, a covenant is a kind of relationship. And, and relationships can be based on all sorts of things. Uh, a relationship can be based on blood, genetics, you know, it makes you family. You're a, a mother, a brother, a cousin. Uh, relationships can be based on proximity, you know, you're, you're close, so you're neighbors. Uh, relationships can be based on shared hobbies or, or shared culture or business interests. Uh, a covenant is a relationship that is formed by a promise. It's based off of a promise. So the members of a covenant, they make formal commitments to each other. Uh, you could use the word contract or treaty to describe it, but that sounds a little bit impersonal when you, we use those kind of terms. Uh, in our culture, there are really two major examples of a covenant, and that is marriage and adoption. Because this is what covenants do. They turn non-family into family. They take people who are not blood-related to each other and, and bonds them with the kind of commitment that relatives are supposed to have for each other. So uh, a man and a woman from two different families, they make public vows to each other, and in doing so, they become one family. Uh, or a family takes in a child that is not born to them, but they make a promise of commitment to that child, and they become family. So when God enters into a covenant with us, this is what happens. We become his children, and Jesus becomes the head of our family. And this is actually the reason why Jesus can pay the price for our sin. You see, Jesus is now no longer uh, some random person who just gets punished in our place. Jesus is the head of our family. Uh, a little while ago, uh, my wife and I did something that I do not recommend doing. We took our children shopping in a nice furniture store. Not a good idea, okay? Uh, not only was this place way out of our price range, but it was definitely not designed for small children. Uh, tight spaces, lots of expensive breakable objects, you know, like vases and sculptures and these big giant glass roosters or something, you know? And to my six-year-old and my two-year-old, every single object in the store was like their new favorite toy, you know? So the whole time, I'm like, uh, 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 set that down, uh, gentle, 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 gentle. Look with your eyes, not with your hands, you know? And the, the, I, I'm afraid the whole time, that the inevitable is going to happen. Uh, fortunately, it did not. But you can imagine what the result would be if one of my kids uh, grabbed something in the store and smashed it. The owners of the store, they would probably go find some random person shopping in the store and say, hey, look, these kids broke that. You pay for it. Well, of course they wouldn't do that, would they? No, they would come to Michelle. They would come to me and say, these are your kids. You owe their debt. You need to pay for what they broke. And it wouldn't matter if I said, well, I didn't personally break the vase. And it wouldn't matter if I said, I told them not to touch the things. They would still say, you are their family. You are their parents. And so you are responsible for paying the price. This is what Jesus is doing. He is saying, through this covenant, you and I become family. And even though I didn't commit the sin, as your head of family, I'm going to take responsibility for your debt and pay the price that you cannot pay. I was recently talking with a couple, and uh, the, the man came into the relationship with a, a large amount of debt from college. And the woman came into the relationship with a large inheritance from a relative. And when they got married, uh, his debt became hers, even though she didn't accrue it. 
And her wealth became his, even though it wasn't originally given to him. This is what the covenant with Jesus means. Our debt is his, and his wealth is ours. We are now family. And this is what communion symbolizes. It's a meal that expresses and renews these family commitments. So when you receive the bread and the cup, this is what's happening. God is saying to you, here, this is my commitment to you. I have given my full self to you. I have united myself with you. I've carried your burdens. And I promise I will never leave you, never forsake you. I promise because of what I've done, you are forgiven, you are free, and you will be with me forever in my kingdom. I promise. And when we take the bread, we take the cup, what we're saying is, God, I am committed to you. I continue to trust in your death and your resurrection as my hope. I'm committed to trusting you and following you wherever you lead. You are my hope in life and death. I promise. Every time you come to the table, you are basically renewing your vows to Jesus. And this is the reason why when we celebrate communion, uh, we tell people who have not made that sort of commitment to God to not partake in the bread and the cup, to, to, to let it pass by. Uh, we don't say this to be exclusive. We don't actually, we, it's the opposite. We want everybody to have the chance to share in this meal, this ceremony with us. Uh, but we know that this ceremony implies a pretty serious commitment. And if you haven't made that commitment, we certainly don't want you to express something uh, hypocritical, to do something you don't mean until you are actually ready to do that. So if you're here today and you're in that boat uh, and we're about to celebrate communion, and you're thinking, that's going to be kind of weird, like this is something that I can't really participate in. We don't want you to feel weird or uncomfortable. There are always people here who are in that situation. And this is what we invite you to do. As we're doing this, think about what it would mean for you. Like, what would it mean if you were a part of that? You say, I, I knew that, that Jesus loved me in that way, that I was a part of this family. What, imagine your life if you're actually a part of a community like this. That's what we want you to do as we're taking communion. On the other side of things, some of you are participating in communion. Uh, you have a commitment to Jesus. You, you, you are, you're all in on the relationship with him, but you have never been baptized. I, I want to challenge you about that uh, because baptism is the other ceremony that Jesus gave, gave us, and it symbolizes something really similar to communion. If communion is the ceremony that renews your commitment to the covenant with Jesus, baptism is the ceremony that symbolizes your entrance into that covenant. So when someone goes down into the water of baptism, they're saying, the death of Jesus was for me. And when they come up out of the water, they're saying, the resurrection of Jesus was for me. Uh, baptism is supposed to mark the beginning of your life with Jesus. That, that's why in the Bible, people didn't wait a long time to get baptized. They just did it right away. It, it was their, their, their moment where they say, I'm all in on this relationship. Now, if you take communion, you are basically saying something similar. You're saying Jesus' body and his blood were for me, and I'm all in on this covenant, on this relationship. It's a renewal and a recommitment of what started in baptism. This is why, historically, almost all churches have believed that people shouldn't receive communion if they've not been baptized. Now, here at Christ Community, we don't have a rule like that. Uh, there's no one at the table who's going to be asking, have you been baptized before you take the bread and the cup? But there is some insight, there is some wisdom from what these other churches have said. Because uh, taking communion without being baptized is sort of like wearing a wedding ring but refusing to have a wedding ceremony. Like, I suppose you could do that, but it's kind of weird, and I'd have some questions about what your relationship was like. I, I mean, in communion, you're saying, God, I'm all in with you, 
But then you turn to him and say, but you know what? I'm not actually going to do the first thing you, you requested of me when we came into this relationship. I'm just not going to do that. So here, here's my challenge for you. If you have not been baptized and you are a believer, our next baptism service are less than a month away, November 12th and 13th. If you haven't done this, I give you permission right now uh, to, to look at the weekly welcome, to go on our app or our website and figure out which time, which baptism class you're going to go to and just decide, I'm going to do it this time, okay? Let's go on. One final message from this passage. Communion previews a future celebration. Communion previews a future celebration. I get this from the observation that we made in verse 25 where Jesus says, I'm not going to drink this again until I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Now, why would Jesus bring up the kingdom during communion? Because communion is a little foretaste, a preview of the kingdom that's coming. And at first you might say, okay, wait, 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 wait a minute. How does, you know, a little cup and a little piece of bread, how does that symbolize the kingdom, you know? And, you know, for one thing, it's because in the Bible, the kingdom of God is always described as a meal. Uh, The prophets in the Old Testament, they talk about how God's people are going to gather on God's holy mountain, and there's going to be this massive feast of of rich food and well-aged wine. And Jesus, when he's teaching, uh, a lot of times in his parables, he talks about the the, the coming kingdom as people gathering from the east and the west to come to a banquet, to a feast. The book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, when Jesus comes back, the victory celebration is described as a wedding feast. And so communion is kind of a little symbol, a symbolic meal of that ultimate meal to come. But you also get a glimpse of the kingdom if you take a wide-angle view of what's going on when we receive communion. If you just zoom in on you taking the bread and the cup all by yourself, it doesn't look like the kingdom. It just looks like a, a private spiritual moment between you and God. But here's the thing. Communion is never done alone. In the Bible, communion is always done when you get together with other followers of Jesus. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul is really clear that if you ignore or neglect the rest of your church community when you take communion, then you're not really taking communion. There there is no such thing as private communion. Uh, This is why I love something I saw when I was at our our Blackberry Creek campus a couple of months ago. I I was standing in the back. It was a a communion weekend, and uh, I I could see the tables where people were coming up. And I saw this woman come up to the table, and she, she took the bread, and she took the cup. And then this young man came up right after her and took the bread and took the cup. And then the two of them walked off together to the side of the room. And I realized, this oh, this young man must be her son. And and the two of them gathered together and they handed each other the bread and they ate it. And then they handed each other the cups and they drank from it. And I I got got super choked up as they, they bowed their heads and they were praying. I'm thinking, what cooler way for a kid to connect with his mom or a mom to connect with her kid, than to share a moment like that, that is amazing. And then what was so cool is, I, at first I thought it was just them, they were doing something special, and I looked around and I realized there are little clumps of people all over the place, community groups and friends and families, and they're, they're sharing communion together. It was so cool. Now, I know the ushers are gonna just hate me for this because it's just gonna gum up the works, but I would love to see more stuff like that happen at all of our campuses. When you receive the bread and the cup to to gather with people that you love in your row, in your zones, uh, on the sides of the rooms, wherever you can, and to share that moment, make it not an individual thing, but a communal thing. Even if you don't do that though, if if you just take a little bit broader view and you look at what's happening, happening in the room around you as you receive communion, you are gonna get a glimpse of the kingdom. Because you're going to see people around doing the same thing you are who are not like you. 
You're going to see both men and women, young and old, married and single and widowed, people who come from across the spectrum of education and class and politics. You're going to see people who are black or white or Latino or Asian. You're going to see citizens and immigrants. You're going to see the able-bodied and people with disabilities. And that's just in the rooms where we worship at Christ Community Church. If you zoom out even further, you'll realize just down the street from most of our campuses are other churches, other people who love Jesus, who who are celebrating the same thing with us on on this weekend, that they're doing the same thing. And you can back up even further and you can take a global perspective and you realize there are hundreds of millions of people doing the same thing around the world. Uh, Most of them, they're, they're in the majority world, they're in South America, they're in Africa, they're in Asia. And sometimes when I'm taking communion, I I think about our partners, Sierra Leone, Haiti, Brazil. Uh, Sometimes I think about house churches in Bangladesh where they're gathering as a a persecuted minority in their culture. And yet when they take communion, they are welcomed as favored guests of King Jesus at his table. And, And if you zoom back even further, if you take in the whole scope of history, you realize there are billions of people who have been following Jesus, who who in all sorts of different times and places and cultures, but one thing they've had in common is they've done this. They've taken the bread, they've taken the cup, they've gathered for communion. This is how you get a glimpse of the kingdom, a kingdom that spans time and culture, a kingdom that takes people who are on the margins and brings them to the center, a kingdom that raises those who are at the bottom of society and puts them in a place of privilege, a kingdom that brings together people who normally would have nothing to do with each other. All of us are gathered at this table on equal footing because everybody here, everybody here knows the only reason we get to come is because of Jesus' love because of his body, his blood, nothing about us. That's it. And we see here a glimpse of where the world is headed, what Jesus is going to do when he returns, the kingdom he's going to bring. Now, again, I know there are some of you here, and you're not sure what you think about all this. You don't know if it's true. But here's what I want you to consider. If it's not true, don't you wish it were? And if it is true, like, it's really good news, isn't it? Like, if it were true, wouldn't you want to be a part of something like that? I know I do. Let me wrap up with just two suggestions here about how to apply what we've read in this passage. First is this. If you are a Christ follower, make gathering for worship on the weekends a priority in your life. Uh, One of the things that the Lord's Supper shows us is that at a basic level, following Jesus is not a solo deal. It's not a private experience. We need to gather regularly with God's people. Uh, Something I've noticed both in my personal life and through hundreds of conversations with people, there is a correlation between how regular you are in attending church and your spiritual vitality. It's not the only factor in your spiritual life, but it's a significant one. Uh, I can't tell you how many times uh, I've talked with people and they say, you know, God feels distant in my life right now. I'm just, I'm feeling spiritually dry. And I I always ask questions about what's going on in their life when they they say something like that. And so often, I dig a little and I find out, you know what, they're only present in church like once a month, twice a month. And and really, like like I said, this is not the only factor, but it's sort of like protein in your diet. Like it's not the only thing you need, but if you don't have it, you're in serious trouble. Uh, Skipping church is sort of like skipping date night, you know? It's like if it happens once in a while, you don't, you know, uh, get to have date night, that's fine. Your your relationship isn't going to fall apart. 
But if again and again you realize, you know what, we scheduled time to be together and, and something came up or I got busy or it got bumped to the next week and it's been a few weeks since you've been together, that, that's not really a good sign for your relationship. So, so here's what I want us to do. I want us to make it a priority to be in worship together on a regular basis, especially on communion weeks, which typically in our church are on the first weekend of the month. The second way uh, I want to apply this message is for us to just celebrate communion right now. Uh, it's a, this is one of those cool messages where uh, you don't have to wait until Monday or when you get home to apply what we've been talking about. We can do it right when the sermon is done. So we're going to do that. We're going to celebrate communion together. And I use that word celebrate very deliberately because uh, sometimes people ask, they say, is communion a, a sad thing or a happy thing? And the answer is yes. Yes, it is. Uh, communion has a sad side to it. We're, we're remembering the death of Jesus for us. That's serious. But it also has a really happy side to it because we are enjoying a relationship with Jesus. We're welcome to his table. Uh, we're anticipating the kingdom that he's bringing and it is so exciting. And, and so this is our hope at Christ Community, that, that communion would be something that is both serious and joyful, that's both weighty and wonder-filled, that this is a victory feast. We are overjoyed that the war has been won, but we have not forgotten what it costs to to win it. So let's celebrate now the body and the blood of Jesus. Let's pray. God, we are so amazed that you have invited us to your table. And we know that on our own, we don't belong here. We, we haven't earned a place with you here. And so we're so thankful that it's by your grace that we get to come and feast with you. God, you, you tell us that before we come to communion that we should examine ourselves and if there's sin we need to confess, we should confess it. And if there are broken relationships we need to do something about that we should resolve to do something about that. And so we're just gonna take a moment right now and in, in the quietness of our hearts, we're gonna reflect and we're gonna confess our sin and bring the relationships to you that we need to do something about. it gives us such confidence to know that you have promised that if we confess our sin to you, you are faithful and just and you forgive our sin. That we know that we can approach communion without shame, without guilt, without fear because you have taken care of it. Your blood covers it all. God, we are so, so amazed that you have invited us to this place. God, we ask that you would meet us here and now, as we commune with you at your table, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.